gone? Okay. If you would, pick up your songbooks and turn to number 332. I'll try to keep this in sight. I apologize to you if uh, back there in the middle that you don't get to see all of it. I'll try to keep it sort of toward the top. I'm kind of an old-fashioned guy, and so I don't uh, use all this computer stuff like some of the others uh, do. Number 332, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence daily live. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. What does it mean to surrender? I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I liked to wrestle with my brothers and also my cousins. Now, my brothers were a good bit older than me, so that was always an exercise in futility. I never really had a chance because they were so much bigger and older, they would always get me down in a hurry. My cousins were also older than me and bigger than me. But they were a little bit closer to my age, and so I felt brave at times, and I would start wrestling and scuffling with them. But inevitably, because they were so much bigger than me, they were going to get the upper hand, they were going to get me down, and I would say, I give up, or I surrender. And what I meant by that is, I no longer want to have conflict with you. I want to end this struggle. I've learned my lesson here. And that's part of what surrendering is about, to stop the conflict. But I believe it means more than that as well. It also means to give my will over to the power of another. And so when I'm singing, I surrender all, what I'm saying is that I'm no longer the master of my own destiny. I'm going to give my will over to your direction. And whatever it is you want me to do, that's what I'll do, because I surrender to thee. Well, there's a second part of surrendering, though. And that has to do with giving over possession of something. I have a little money in my wallet. And... Maybe it's a little bit more than I expected to see in here, but it's, it's about the usual amount. Uh, not too much, in other words. Suppose you come up to me and you say, Phil, you owe me $20. I'm going to say, what for? And you say, well, day before yesterday, your wife was out with me and the family at the mall, and she forgot her purse. And so I loaned her money to buy your little girl some french fries, of which I saw none of that money nor did I see any of those french fries. Nevertheless, I feel obligated, because it's my wife, to give you $5 on account, and I'll see Judy about the rest of it later. But I'm surrendering this $5 over to you. I'm giving up possession of this amount of money, and now it belongs to you. And so when I surrender all, when I'm singing this song, I surrender all, I'm saying, I'm going to give myself over to Jesus, and in addition, I'm going to give my possessions over to Jesus. Well, think about it for a minute. Has the man who attends on Sunday morning but doesn't seem fit to come back on Sunday night or any other time, has that person surrendered all? Or is that a partial surrender? Or what about the man that comes on Sunday, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, and in gospel meetings perhaps, but he does whatever else he wants to do the rest of the week? Has that person surrendered all? Or is that a partial surrender? Take that a step farther. What about the man who gives more than 10% of his income on the first day of the week? And, but that's all he'll do. And if somebody comes up to him in the middle of the week and says, Well, Joe, I, uh, I've been laid off for a little while, and the kids need food. I need to pay the gas bill, the electric bill. Can you help me out a little bit here? And he says, 
well, no, I gave more than 10% on Sunday. Why don't you just go see the elders of the congregation and they can take care of you? Has that person surrendered all? Or is it a partial surrender? Well, in the song, I'm singing all to Jesus I surrender. Not partial, not even a majority, but everything. That means I'm going to give myself in totality to the Lord. Body, soul, and spirit. It was in connection with this that Jesus was asked in Matthew, the 22nd chapter, what the great commandment was. And he responded by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And of course, the, of course, the light, uh, second commandment likened unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The idea being that if you do the first, you're automatically going to want to take care of the second. After all, if you love God whom you haven't seen, then you're also going to want to love your neighbor whom you have seen, as 1 John 4 and verse 20 points out. Well, if I were to go around the room today and ask, have you surrendered all? I think we would all be inclined to say, yes, I've, I've surrendered all to Jesus. And in fact, if we went around the country today to all the brethren who were gathered together and we said, have you surrendered all? We would probably get that same answer. Yes, I have indeed surrendered all. Some answering perhaps without fully contemplating what being, uh, surrendering all really means. Well, what I want to do today is look at a character who I, did, who I believe did surrender all to God. And by looking at this person and, and what he was willing to go through, Maybe we can look at ourselves and better ascertain whether, in fact, we have been willing to surrender all to Jesus. Turn over to Genesis, the 12th chapter, if you would. The man, if you haven't already guessed by the passage here, is Abraham. Let's read the first four verses. It says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now I imagine if Abraham was here and we sang number 332, he could sing that right along with us. I surrender all. And yet the first thing that God's asking him to leave is his country. Leave your country, Abraham. Now, God had already asked Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees and move to Haran. His father has died in Haran, so he's got some roots there. And now God's saying, you leave Haran, then you go to another country. Hebrews, the 11th chapter in verse 8, is an interesting passage because it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would afterward receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, Abraham obeyed. He listened to what God had to say on this matter. And there's no hesitancy in it. Apparently, he didn't hesitate. He didn't question. He obeyed when God said, go and leave your country. And if God were to lead us today, and I do believe he leads us in ways today, perhaps not in the same sense that he did Abraham, but he gives us opportunities to move to other places and do things for his good and for his cause. If God were to do that to us today, could we do it? Could we leave our country? How many of you know Alan Malone? Does anybody? A few of you know Alan. A number of years ago, Alan was preaching in Indiana. And God blessed him with an opportunity from Indiana to move to Richmond, Virginia. And after that, God gave him the opportunity to move to Jackson, Mississippi, blessing him greatly. I grew up in Mississippi. And that's where I got to meet Alan. But after that, Alan was blessed with an opportunity to move to Vietnam. Now, here's a country that's a communist country. At the time, we didn't even have full relations restored with the country. 
Here's a country that it's illegal for a foreigner to go there and preach the gospel to the residents of that land. It's a country where it's illegal to have house churches, and yet that's what Alan had planned to do, was go there and work in that capacity. Well, that is an opportunity Alan saw fit to listen and, or take advantage of and do what Abraham did and obey and go out to that land that he had never been to before. Now, what really brought this home to me was about 11 years ago, I was doing a lesson over in Milan, Tennessee, and I was talking about the subject, how we need to be willing to accept opportunities to go elsewhere to preach the gospel when the time comes. And it's interesting because one week after that lesson, I got a phone call. Alan was in Vietnam at the time, and somebody's calling me asking me, Phil, Alan needs you to go to Vietnam for a while because he needs to come back to the United States and, and, and conduct some business here. And he needs somebody to be there to pick up the studies he's been doing and work with the church for a few weeks. Can you do that? And I said, yeah, sure. No. I started making up excuses. I said, I don't know if I can come up with the time. You know, I'm, I'm working and we're real busy right now and I'm just not sure I can get the time off to go. And I'm not sure I can get the money to go. And, I, and that's only two months notice. I don't know if I can get a passport and get everything situated to get there on time. I sounded just like Moses when God had instructed him to go into uh, to before Pharaoh and to tell him to let his people go. And it really dawned on me what Abraham had done when I considered that. That Abraham obeyed by going out to a place he had never seen before, and he had no hesitancy about it. He just obeyed. Now, I had some advantages over Abraham. After all, I was going to be buying a round-trip ticket to Vietnam. That was the plan that I come back. And I was only going to stay there for a few weeks. And even though I had never been there before, it wasn't going to be an unknown place in the sense that uh, I was going to be by myself. Alan was going to be there for a couple of days to get me acclimated to Vietnam before he had to return to the States. So here I am making excuses. I didn't have to do anything like Abraham had to do. Well, if God were to ask us today to leave your country, could we do it? Well, somebody might say, well, you know, I have a hole here. This is home. But we need to remember what Paul told the Philippians in the third chapter in verse 20, that our citizenship is in heaven. This earth is not our home. Somebody might say, I'm an American. I, I like it here. But Peter, in 1 Peter 2 and verse 11, called us sojourners and pilgrims. And as we've been called such, we need to be ready to live as sojourners and pilgrims while we're here on this earth. Now, that might not mean moving from the United States to another country. It might mean moving like some of Alan's moves from Indiana to Virginia to Mississippi to Vietnam to Tennessee. He lives in, uh, the, well, he worships in the Hendersonville uh, congregation now, and he lives up in Gallatin. It might mean moving from Texas to Tennessee or Illinois to Tennessee. And I'm not talking about here necessarily moves for our own good. I'm talking about moves for the furtherance of the gospel. Could we do that? Somebody that, that likes your home state, that'd be a tough thing to do. And yet, that's what Abraham was willing to do. Leave his country. Well, another thing that Abraham was told to do is to leave his family. Genesis 12 and verse 1, he said, uh, God tells him to leave your country and get away from your family and from your father's house and away from your father's house and go to a land that I will show you. And Abraham did that. He left his family. Jesus in Matthew, the 10th chapter, in verse 34, says that I came not to bring peace, but a sword. 
And a couple of verses on over in verse 36, he says, A man's foes will be those of his own household. There's a point he's getting at here, and that is we've got to serve God no matter what obstacles that we might face. And if if that means giving up family members, if it means giving up father, mother, brother, sister, husband, or wife, in the fullest sense of the term, that's what God requires of us, to give up family. I'll tell you a story I heard about uh, several years ago. There was a Christian lady in Georgia whose husband had been withdrawn from. And the Bible teaches in 1 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, in verse 11, not to have anything to do with such a one, no, not to even eat with such a one. You know what this lady did? She decided she wasn't going to eat with her husband. She would serve him meals. She would take them to him, and then she would eat her meal in a different room. Now, that'd be a tough situation. Uh, and I'm not sure what I would do. I'm not 100% sure that's exactly what the Lord has in mind when it comes to a husband and wife. Nevertheless, that's what she felt like she had to do to affect restoration in her husband. You know what happened in short order? He was restored. But the principle that she demonstrated in doing that was that of putting God before family, giving up family, putting God first. And we've got to be ready to do that same kind of a thing. I came to set at variance, a mother, a daughter. Not that hostility is supposed to be a motivating factor for us, but we need to realize that we've got to serve the Lord God and put Him first, and if that means giving up our family members, so be it. And sometimes it may be that our, own, our, that our foes, our greatest enemies, will be those of our own household. We can think of lots of Bible examples where this was the case. Second Samuel, the 13th chapter, Amnon. Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab. And Jonadab also happened to be Amnon's cousin. Well, did Jonadab, what, did, what did Jonadab do for Amnon? Well, he didn't do any, any favors, that's for sure. He caused him to sin by defiling his sister Tamar. And, of course, that ultimately led to Amnon's demise when he was killed by his vengeful brother Absalom. Ahab. Now, Ahab had enough problems on his own serving the Lord and doing a good job, didn't he? But who was it that made Ahab worse? It was somebody in his own family, his wife Jezebel, who was always provoking him to do evil and and take it a step farther. Family members that got in the way of service to God. Abraham showed us that God has to come first, and if that means giving up your family, then, then that's what it means. All right, another thing, Abraham was surrendered to God. By giving up his country and by giving up his family, he also gave up his judgment. Think about Hebrews, the 11th chapter, and verse 8 again. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would afterward receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, that's interesting. He went out not knowing where he was going. That doesn't make sense to us. Abraham, you mean to tell me that you're going to leave your family, leave the country that you know something about, leave the grave of your father, you've established some roots here, and you're going to go off to some place you've never seen before and you don't even know where you're headed to? That doesn't make sense, Abraham. Now, what if it had happened this way? What if God had said, Abraham, I want you to leave this country and go to another place? And Abraham says, why, Lord? And God says, well... The place I'm going to lead you to is going to be a fertile land, and it's going to be better soil for crops than, than Haran, where you've been. Okay, Lord, that sounds pretty good. What else? Well, another reason is the place that I'm going to lead you to, you know, where you've been, Haran, is a dry, arid region, desert region, and I'm going to lead you to a place that has a lot more water, and so it's going to be better for your crops and your cattle and flocks. Okay, Lord, that sounds pretty good. 
What else you got? Well, there's another reason, Abraham. The place I'm going to lead you to is a broad, flat plain, and it's going to be better for your cattle and your flocks. And it's not going to be like some of the mountainous regions that you've been in in the past, like Ur of the Chaldees, maybe, and some of the other places. And, okay, sounds pretty good. And after God goes through five or ten of these, Abraham says, fine, Lord, sounds good to me. I'm ready to go. That's not what happened, is it? Abraham went out without knowing where he was going to. Now, can you imagine arriving at the place that God has sent you to and saying, this is the place God wanted me to go to? Now, it turns out everything was great. It was a great land. It was lush and fertile and, and lots of water and good for crops and cattle, a land flowing with milk and honey, as it's described later on. But Abraham didn't know that at the time. He went out not knowing where he was going to. He operated within the realm of faith, and that's the kind of service God expects out of us, where our own sense of judgment is not satisfied always. But we have to leave it in the hands of God and put our trust in what God says. There are a lot of examples of this, you know, in the Bible, in what the Bible says and what it teaches. Some people have problems with that. You expect me to believe that God created the earth in six days, the creation account? That doesn't appeal to the reason of some people. You expect me to believe Jonah was, was swallowed by a great fish or swallowed by a whale? Well, that's not so hard to believe, is it? If God said Jonah swallowed a whale, that part would be hard to believe, wouldn't it? But a whale's a great big animal, and Jonah, he found himself in the belly of that whale, and I'm called upon to believe that, because God said it. And if for no other reason, because Jesus in Matthew, the 12th chapter, beginning with about verse 38, makes a connection with that event, Jonah having the, in the belly of the whale for three days, Jesus corresponds that with him being buried in the earth for three days before he rises again. If I want to believe the part about Jesus, then I'm called upon to believe the part about Jonah, even though I might not fully understand it. Maybe it doesn't appeal to my sense of judgment. Maybe I don't understand how a man could live in the belly of a whale for three days. God said it. I need to believe it. And the Bible's full of examples like that, where maybe we've got to say, I don't understand everything there is to know about this, but I'm going to put my trust in what God says, because I know who it is that's talking there. Josiah. You know, over in 2 Kings, the 22nd chapter and verse 20, Josiah is told that he's going to die in peace. But as you look at 2 Chronicles 35, verses 23 and 24, how did Josiah die? He was shot with an arrow. Now, I don't know about you, but when I imagine all the peaceful ways that I can die, I imagine dying in my bed and in my sleep, maybe another way or two peacefully, but I'll tell you, I've never imagined dying in peace by being shot by an arrow. Well, I don't understand that fully, and maybe I have to take that a step farther and understand, well, maybe God's talking about peace in a relative sense. After all, Josiah, he didn't have to see the ruin of his people and the fall of Jerusalem. But I've got to say at times, I just don't understand, Lord, but I'm going to do what you say. That's what Abraham had to give up, his own judgment when he was asked to go to a place he had never seen before. Well, something else Abraham surrendered to God, and this is a little bit later in life, over in Genesis, the 13th chapter. We're going to read verses 7 through 9. Abraham surrendered his personal privilege for the sake of peace. It says in verse 7, 
And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the right, then I will go to the left. Uh, if you take the left, then I will go to the right. For if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. Now here Abraham and Lot, they have herdsmen who are not getting along. And Abraham says, there's no reason for this conflict to exist. After all, we're brethren. So I'll tell you what I'll do, Lot. You pick the direction you want to go, and then I'll adapt to that. I'll go the other way. Now, what could Abraham, Abraham have done? He could have said to Lot, Well, Lot, I'm the older. I'm the one who God has given his uh, promises to. So I'm going to go the direction I want to go, and then you're going to have to go a different way. That's not what he did, is it? Abraham showed the kind of man that he was by letting Lot choose first. Now, think about all the conflicts that we could resolve in our personal lives, in marriages, in local churches, if we would have the attitude that Abraham had, where we're willing to give up our personal privilege for the sake of peace, we need to know what the other person wants and then let them have their way sometimes. And I'm not talking about matters of truth here. I'm talking about matters of personal preference. We don't always have to have it our own way. I believe that's what Paul is really trying to get at in 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, in verse 7, when he counsels that the Corinthians not go to law against one another. Rather, you should suffer the wrong, he tells them. Paul also tells the Philippians in the 2nd chapter, in verse 3, to esteem others better, let each esteem others better than himself. But in verse 5 and following, he tells to give the perfect, perfect example of somebody who did that very thing, Jesus. How Jesus left the glories of heaven and didn't think that that was something to be held on to, and he came to the earth to live in the flesh and to be that perfect sacrifice for man's sin, to die on the cross. Well, Jesus wasn't thinking about his own self. He wasn't doing what he could have done, what might have been best for him. He was thinking about what was best for everybody else. And that's the thing that Abraham did. He let Lot choose what's best for, everybody, for, for him, and then he adapted. And, and we could learn a lot by doing that. You know, we see this in families all the time. And sometimes it's, a little, it, it's innocent in families, I guess, but it can become serious. My family's always been a baseball family. We've always loved baseball, the St. Louis Cardinals in particular. And I can remember over the years, my brothers and I would get together, and we would start talking about baseball, and inevitably we'd get to statistics, and St. Louis Cardinals statistics in particular, and talk about how Lou Brock batted a certain batting, batting average one year, or and how in 1975, Lou Rock stole 56 bases. And one of my brothers might say, no, I believe it was 60 that year, wasn't it? No, another brother might say, it was 54 bases he stole. I'm pretty sure. And then another one, I've got three brothers, so there's good, good discussions that get going. I believe that year he stole, stole 118, wasn't it? No, that wasn't right. Well, you know what? It might have mattered to Lou Brock the year he did it and a couple of years thereafter. But for our purposes, several years later, it really didn't make much of a difference whether Lou Brock stole 56 bases in 1975, which is the right answer, by the way, or some other amount. There's no reason for conflict to exist sometimes. I can remember riding in the back seat of my car a few years ago, or of our car a few years ago, with a couple of family members. And they were over near Humboldt, Tennessee, and they were talking about where a wreck had taken place some years before. Now, first of all, you know how much it mattered to me 
the details of that wreck, where it took place, about that much, okay? But the conversation kept going. Now, here's where that wreck was. No, it wasn't here. It was on up the road 200 yards. Don't you remember? See that tree? It was on up the road. No, I'm pretty sure it was here. Here's the bottom of the hill. This is where that wreck was. And I'm sitting in the back seat thinking, why is this conflict, why is it going on? Why are we having it? There's no reason for this. Get on with the story behind the wreck. Because it doesn't matter if it was here or 200 yards up the road. So-and-so, you know, he used to come to the house. He's from Obine. He was from Obine. No, he was from Mount Pleasant. No, I'm pretty sure he was from Obine. No, it was Mount Pleasant. He died, you know. No, he's still living with one foot in the grave. There's no reason for conflict sometimes. You know, parents understand this principle pretty well. If you have two children and one candy bar, what do you do? You let one cut and let the other choose which side they want. And in so doing, that one who cuts is extremely careful to cut that candy bar right down the center. And then the one who chooses doesn't really have an advantage either because they're both equal. But it shows that there's no reason for conflict. And that's what Abraham tried to show us when he gave up his personal privilege for the sake of peace. Well, one other thing that Abraham gave up in Genesis, the 22nd chapter. God tells Abraham to take his son, his only son, that son of promise, and to sacrifice him to God. Now, Abraham's already been asked to give up his country, his family, his judgment in so doing, his personal privilege in the case with Lot, and now he's being asked to give up his son. And maybe we don't fully understand what's going through the mind of Abraham now. Maybe we don't understand why it is that Abraham was willing to give all of these things up. Then, of course, as we turn over to Hebrews, the 11th chapter, and verse 19, that sheds a little bit more light on it. Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. And so he had that belief, and that sustained him through that. In a situation that didn't seem to be very hopeful, he had hope in that situation. Well, how was Abraham able to do all of these things? And we can sum it up with a number six here if we want to, that he surrendered completely in faith to God. Abraham's faith stands as a monument to the kind of man that he was. And I want to turn over to one more passage and read Romans, the fourth chapter, verses 16 through 22 in just a minute. But before we do that, let's take one more look. Abraham has surrendered in his life his country, his family, his own judgment, his personal privilege for the sake of peace, his son, he was willing to surrender Isaac. And how could he do all these things? Well, look at Romans, the fourth chapter. Verse 16 says, therefore, it is of faith. And the it that he's talking about here is salvation or forgiveness of sins. It is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, and that's kind of interesting right there. Just stop for a second. The latter part of verse 17. God calls those things that do not exist as though they did. And one of the places that come to mind is in the book of Isaiah, where God calls Cyrus, the king of Persia, more than 100 years before Cyrus is born. 
And the, the idea behind this is that if God says it's so, it's just as good as if, if it had already happened. You can take it to the bank if God says it's so, even if it hasn't happened yet. And, and that's part of what sustained Abraham and all of these things. Okay, let's continue on. Verse 18. Who contrary to hope in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now there's five statements in these two verses that really underline Abraham's faith. First of all, in verse 17, he knew in whom it was that he believed. The second one, some translations say hope against hope in, in, in verse 18, or contrary to hope in hope. What does that mean? Well, think about all the situations that occurred in Abraham's life. He often faced times when it didn't seem to be a hopeful situation, and yet Abraham had hope and faith despite that situation. Think about Isaac. Killing Isaac was against hope, but Abraham believed he had hope against that hope. All right, the third thing in verse 19, not being weak in faith. Now think about his life for a minute. God says, you leave Haran, or you leave Ur of the Chaldees, you go to Haran. Leave Haran, go to a place that you've never seen before. During his life, leave, leave Canaan, go down to Egypt. Leave Egypt, go back to Canaan. The average person might have said, Lord, you no longer let me get settled before you're asking me to move again. And that might have weakened the faith of the average person. But it didn't weaken the faith of Abraham. He, he was not weakened in faith. All right, verse 20, the fourth item, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. And the fifth item is in verse 21, and this is really the key to the whole thing. Being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Abraham believed that if God said it, I can take it to the bank, and therefore I can act. Abraham was a fine example for us today. But let's make, not make the mistake of wasting that example. You know, as we look at Hebrews, the 11th chapter, not only Abraham, but the other men and women of faith there, sometimes we're tempted to say, boy, what great faith they had. Boy, I wish I had faith like that. And it's okay to say, yeah, they had great faith. They were good examples. But let's not be caught saying, I wish I had faith like that. And you know why? Because it's not there for us to just stand in awe over. It's there so that we can emulate it. Now, we may not face the same kind of situations in life that they had to face in Hebrews 11th chapter and what Abraham had to face. But if we were to face those kind of situations, God expects us to respond in a similar faithful manner as those people did. That's why it's there. So we can see that they went through it, they did it, and we can do it too. Well, if you're not a Christian this morning, pick up a song, but let's turn, uh, turn to number 332 if you're not there. If you're not a Christian, you need to emulate Abraham's faith. Abraham had an obedient faith, and we want to encourage you to render obedience to the gospel of Christ by being baptized in his name for the remission of sins. And for the rest of us that are Christians, as we stand and sing this song, I Surrender All, let's think about Abraham and the faith that he had. And then let's think about our, ourselves. And let's commit ourselves to surrendering everything, or maybe recommit ourselves to surrendering everything that we have to God. Our possessions, ourselves, are our 100% all. Let's think on these things while we stand and sing the song.